Um, we're going to do a little two-part series for New Year's. Um, and, you know, I, I, I usually don't speak on, on the Sunday of New Year's. Uh, we usually have a guest or whatever because I've done the Christmas stuff and all that. But uh, as you can see, Bruce is not here. Uh, but I thought that it would be really cool to do a two-part series. And this morning, we're going to deal with part one, which has to do with looking back. So we're going to be kind of looking back at 2016 and, and, and sort of remembering and celebrating the work of God. And then next Sunday, Lord willing, if we make it to next Sunday, if Jesus doesn't come back, I'm fine if he does, uh, we will deal with part two. And we will be uh, kind of focusing on forward, looking forward, looking at 2017, casting a little vision uh, for our church, setting a few goals and things like that. It's really important to do that. So two weeks, we're looking back and we're looking forward. I think it'd be befitting before we uh, begin to study God's Word that, that we pray one more time. You can't pray enough, uh, especially when it comes to this. So Father in heaven, we, um, first of all, we want to say we love you. And we love you because you first loved us. And we love you because your love endures forever, as we sang. You are faithful. You are completely and utterly and absolutely faithful. And, and we are not. We are not. We have moments of faithfulness, and, but we are kind of plagued by the flesh and unfaithfulness. And so we can really honestly say without a shadow of a doubt, you are the truly faithful one and, and that you, you are immutable. You do not change. And uh, you have uh, stated your love for us and given us that love in the Holy Spirit. And, and, and we will enjoy your love forever and ever and ever. It's just mind-blowing to think about. And so, Lord, we want this service to be glorifying to you, to be a, a sweet aroma to you, to a, a, just an offering to you, an offering of praise, recognizing your faithfulness today. What, what, a, what a great subject and topic for, for New Year's, looking back and pondering your faithfulness and celebrating with you. That's what we're here to do today, Lord. May you receive all the glory and praise. Open our hearts and minds this morning to your word. Send the Holy Spirit in power that he would effectually apply the scripture to us. And as Rick prayed earlier, just chip a little bit more of me away and make me look a little bit more and sound a little bit more like Jesus. Sanctify us today by the power of the Holy Spirit. We love you. We give you our, our time and attention now, and we pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Well, throughout Israel's history, God desired for his people to know their history, to know their history, okay? Israelis, Jews, the Israelites, if you will, are pretty much history buffs. They look back, they study their history, and God has sort of always planned that for them and commanded that they do that, and not only has God said, you're my people and I want you to reflect back and look back and know where you've been and where you've come from, but also teach your history to your children. And so God has always desired for his people to know their history and to teach it to their children. He even commanded that the Israelites, his people, memorialize certain events, memorialize even certain places so that they could, you know, over time they could look back and remember the things that God had done for them and that they could celebrate those events and those works of God's power and grace and might. The Passover would be a, a really good example of a memorial event. Okay, we've got our memorial day where we celebrate something and we reflect. But, you know, Israel has a ton of these things, events and places and things like that. And events, and, and the Passover would be sort of one of these memorial events. Now, you remember the story, right? Most of you probably do. God commanded his people, the Israelites, who were in Egypt at the time, to paint their doorposts and the lentils with the blood of young male lambs. And when the Lord appeared at night, he would pass over the houses that were painted with blood and not destroy the firstborn sons. He even vowed to do that with livestock. God wanted his people to memorialize this incredible event and then commemorate it each year. He wanted them to celebrate the Passover. That's how that comes in. Exodus 12, 14 says, This day, speaking of Passover, shall be for you a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord. 
throughout your generations as a statute forever. You shall keep it as a feast. So the Passover would be a memorial event. We also see, as I mentioned, memorial places. We see them in Scripture. A memorial place would be a particular location that God wanted his people to remember and maybe to focus back on. And, and the, the passage that Ronnie read a moment ago, Joshua 4, 1 through 7, speaks of a memorial place, a particular location that God wanted his people to remember. And what I want to do is just uh, walk through Joshua 4, 1 through 7, and, and then parallel it to us, then contextualize it to our example or for us now. And so we're going to kind of walk through that text. But I think that it's befitting to give you a little bit of context before we actually examine and study this text. After Moses, who was the, one of the greatest leaders of, of Israel, and literally a foreshadow in so many ways of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the greatest leader of Israel, and, and, and the church, by the way, and, and the entire universe, we might as well put it there because he's totally sovereign. But after Moses, this incredible person who led Israel for a number of years, after he died, his successor, the guy who followed him, his general, basically, Joshua, he began to lead the Israelites into the promised land. This is something that Moses didn't get to do. It's like the day that Moses died, he was looking across the river and seeing it, but he couldn't go into it. He passed away, and then Joshua kind of takes over for him, begins to lead the Israelites into the promised land. When they arrived at uh, the base of the Jordan, if you will, the Jordan River, a very well-known river in the region, uh, wide river. It's not like our little Stanislaus rivers and things like that that are pretty narrow and small. This was a pretty good-sized river. When they arrived at it, God had planned to validate um, or to authenticate Joshua's leadership by working a special supernatural miracle that would show that God was with Joshua, that God was working through Joshua, that God was leading Joshua. Now, God had done these sorts of things for Moses many, many times. And, and what would happen is, is that when God would work a miracle, the people would see Moses as the servant of the Lord, and they would begin to submit to him. These miracles that God worked through these leaders would cause submission. It would cause the people to kind of check themselves and to submit. And so God did this all the time for Moses, and now it was basically time for God to do this with Joshua. You're the new leader of my people. My people need to know that I am with you, that I am here in power, that I am leading you, that you're really not the leader, you're my instrument, but they need to know that I'm here and I'm going to authenticate you. And so that's exactly what God is aiming to do here. Now, according to Joshua 3, just the chapter before we just read the section from 4, the plan was to send some of the priests and the Ark of the Covenant ahead into the river and supernaturally part the waters so that God's people, the Israelites, could pass through. It really was like a mini version of the Red Sea. It really was. And in fact, that's, that's the parallel. God had part of the Red Sea with Moses as he's leading. That was a way for God to deliver his people to safety, to authenticate Moses' leadership. And, 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 and he's about to do the same thing, or he is doing in our text, the same thing here, but on a smaller scale. Now, that doesn't make Joshua less of a leader, because I think parting a river is not as impressive as parting a sea. But it's God's way of saying, I'm with you. I'm with this man. And so that's what's going on here. In Joshua 4, we see that not only in Joshua 3, we see that God's plan was essentially to authenticate Joshua, but in 4, we begin to see that God's plan had more facets to it than the authentication of Joshua. It was a, what I would call a multifaceted plan. It, it also had to do with confirming God's presence and power. Not just, that's my guy, Joshua, but confirming God's presence and power. It had to do with establishing a memorial for his people. And it also had to do with giving his people something to share and to talk about with others. There's sort of an evangelistic component here, and we're going to discover these other facets to God's plan as we move through the text. So at this point in the narrative, the priests and the ark are basically still in the water, and the people are passing through. 
And I think the way that it worked was that soon as the priest and the ark started entering the water, the water started parting as they were moving further and further out. And when they got out into the middle, then it was wide open. So that's the point that we're at right now. And then we come to verses 1 through 5. Okay, you got it there? If you're there, say I'm there. Joshua 4, 1 through 5. Here's what it says. The Word of God says, When all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan, the Lord said to Joshua, Take twelve men from the people, from each tribe a man, and command them, saying, Take twelve stones from here, out of the midst of the Jordan, from the very place where the priest's feet stood firmly, and bring them out over with you, and lay them down in the place where you lodge tonight. Then Joshua called the twelve men from the people of Israel, whom he had appointed, a man from each tribe. And Joshua said to them, Pass on before the ark of the Lord your God into the midst of the Jordan, and take up each of you a stone upon his shoulder, according to the number of the tribes of the people of Israel. Now here's the deal. We could look at this text from a number of ways, uh, but I want to identify four things that, that I found in it and that I think are very, very interesting. And now, whenever I do bullet points here, they're almost paragraphs. So good luck writing these things down. But anyways, these are the things that I noticed in the text that I believe God wants communicated to you today because it's not just about Pastor Phil and his wonderful time studying the Word. It is about me but God has you in mind. You are the apple of his eye, and he wants to talk to you. And so these are the things that I discovered. Number one, God revealed. This is the first thing I saw. I thought it was incredible. God revealed the second facet or part of his plan to Joshua after the waters were parted and the people had crossed. We see that in verse 1. So God gives him the first part of the plan, and that's basically send the ark and the priest in the water. I'm going to part the water so you can pass by. That's the first part. And then God begins to communicate another facet to his plan after the fact, after they've already crossed. Everyone's made it over. You can see it there in verse 1, when all the nation had finished passing over the Jordan. So as far as Joshua knows, God just wants to part the water and then go over to the other side. He's going to authenticate me, whatever it is. And then God speaks to Joshua when we get to the other side and we see this other facet. Now, I'm just going to say that I believe this is the way that God tends to work in, in terms of not revealing everything to us up front. Anyone, can anyone give me a witness? Can anyone say amen, right? I, I, I just think it's very rare that God says I, X, Y, and Z and go and take care of it. I think that a lot of times the way that he works with us is that he reveals very, very little information up front. He says, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. We usually find those commands in scriptures. Not that he's speaking extra revelation to us, but that you know, we get an inclination. We get a, something in us that says, God wants me to do this. God wants me to do that. Obviously, those things square with scripture. But for the most part, the way that he works in my life is that he tends to give me a little bit of information and then he sends me out. He usually sends us out with minimal information and then reveals things to us as we go, as we work, as we serve Him. Like I said, He does this with me all the time. I've got a million examples. I'll just give one. I recently went to a hospital. Somebody called me and said, can you come to the hospital and pray for my mother-in-law? She's dying. And I said, of course, I'll, I'll go over to the hospital. I had to drive to Emmanuel Lutheran in Turlock and, you know, and... Here's the deal. I went to, to greet this guy who called me and to go in and pray for the mother-in-law, and then, and then I was out of there. You know, I was going to head home and do whatever. And after praying over this, this dying person, uh, which is honestly not my favorite kind of ministry to do, I, I don't, you know, just to see someone like that, you know, and it's just very hard. It's very challenging. I, I know what the loss is like. I do these things all the time, but it was a challenging thing. But anyways, here I am praying over her, and, and quite honestly, as a pastor, sometimes you don't know exactly what to pray for. <laughs> Save them, God, heal them, do this, do that. Mostly I'm kind of praying for the people in the room. Console them, Lord, reveal yourself to them. Give them your peace. If they don't know Jesus, help them know Jesus. So after praying over this woman for just five or six minutes or so, the next thing you know, I'm sitting in a chair sharing the gospel with her daughter. 
that is something that I had not anticipated or really planned to do. Now, I think that as Christians, we sort of keep the door open to other things that God might want to do while we're out there, but he certainly didn't tell me, you're going to go there. And In fact, by the time it was all said and done, I ended up spending five minutes praying over that gal, if that, and then I spent an hour proclaiming the gospel to this woman. I, I was convinced that the true, deeper reason why I was there, the other facet or the true plan of God was for me to meet with that gal and to proclaim Christ to her in the midst of that pain. I literally thought that God's plan for my afternoon was singular. I really did. I thought it was singular. Go to the hospital and pray over this gal. And then I discovered that it had multifacets to it. Evangelize someone. Share my son with someone. Now, I will say this, and you might be thinking, okay, God, you're our Abba Father. You love us and all that. Why do you do this with us? Because I think we reckon that it would be very helpful if God just gave us everything right up front. We just went out and did what we did. Why does God sort of intentionally withhold information? And he does. And I will say this, it's for our benefit. It's for our sanctification. It's for our growth. In doing so, what does that cause us to do? It causes us to seek him. It causes us to call upon him for wisdom and direction for clarity even, it causes us in the ultimate sense, and this is what he's after, to rely on him. You know, you just think about it. If he just gave us everything up front, we'd probably just go out there and do whatever, and we really wouldn't even acknowledge him while we're doing it. You see, he withholds information up front for our benefit, and he reveals the fullness of his plan as we go. And the reason why is because you're not just going out there to do something. I'm going with you, and you're going to need to call upon me while we're out there. In fact, you're not just going to do something. I'm going to work through you. You're my hands and feet. And so you're going to need to seek me when you get to that point. And you're going to need to seek me when you get to that next point. And you're going to, you're going to, actually, you're going to get into this thing, and you're going to get into it. You're really not going to know what to do. You're not going to know how to tackle this. How many of you thought you were equipped to deal with a situation? You jumped into it, and you're like, wow, I don't know what to do on this situation. As a youth pastor, I found myself doing that all the time. I know how to deal with this, 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 and this. And then this kid over here, Jimmy's got some kind of issue. It's not any Jimmy that's related to anyone in here. It's my, my pseudo Jimmy, right? Don't think, oh, my son, he came to him again. Oh, no, don't do that. I don't know how to deal with Jimmy's issue, okay? I, I'm equipped. I, I'm, a, I'm an equipped pastor. I'm trained and all. I got trained really good at Big Valley, you know, all that. But I don't know how to deal with this. At this point now, the facet is that I need to seek the Lord to get the wisdom. We do this all the time. So he wants us to rely on him. And ultimately, ultimately what he wants from his children on this side of glory is for them to learn to live by faith, not by sight. You get to spend an eternity living by sight in the presence of our awesome God. And it's going to be, he's going to be something to behold. In fact, he's our inheritance. He's that glorious and amazing. We can't even capture his majesty on this side of glory. We can try feeble attempts. We'll live by sight then when we're in his presence. But right now, he calls us to live by faith. And what is living by faith? Relying on him in a spiritual sense, calling to him in prayer, studying his word, engaging in the means of grace. Okay, so that's the first thing. Secondly, God commanded that Joshua appoint 12 men, one from each tribe, to go back into the river to get 12 stones from where the priests were standing. Verses 2 Through 3a, the 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 sons of Israel. Just a quick acknowledgement of what these 12 men represent. The 12 tribes of Israel came from the 12 sons of Israel. Israel is the name that God gave Jacob. Remember that little conniver? Well, God changed his name later and kind of built a nation on him in a sense. According to Genesis 35, 23 through 26, his 12 sons and basically the 12 tribes are Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Dan, Naphtali, Gad, Asher, Issachar, Zebulun, Joseph, and Benjamin. And some would add Manasseh and and they kind of spin it up a little bit because there's different sort of uh, namings in scripture, but really they're all the same thing. Uh, The choosing of a man, and here's the point, choose 12, one from each tribe. Here's kind of God's point here. The choosing of a man from each tribe represents the fact that God wants all of his people, 
represented by what he is about to do here or by what he is doing. He wants basically like a head from each tribe. They all sort of, in a sense here, uh, represent all of the 12 tribes. And he wants every head to represent all of their people. And so this is God's way of saying, I want every one of my people represented by what I am doing at this moment. Number three, God commanded that Joshua have the 12 men bring the stones with them and lay them in their camp. 3b, we see that in verse 3b. After crossing the Jordan, the Israelites set up camp at Gilgal, which is about a mile and a half, mile and a quarter or so from Jericho. Most of us have heard of that famous city. Uh, this was This location was Israel's first campsite in the land that God had promised to the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Uh, this is their first night, if you will, in the promised land. This is their first day and night in the promised land. So, so I, I don't want you to miss the significance of what God is actually doing here. It's, it's very, very profound. It's very, very significant. This was their first day, again, and night in the promised land. And they had not secured it yet. They had many foes to deal with. Now think about it. God performed the miracle at the Jordan, okay, to show that He was with His people on their first day, right? And to the first day in the promised land, He performed it to show, I am with you on your first day as you enter, and to set the stage for future displays of His presence and power. Okay? So, they're stepping into the promised land. God performs a miracle to show them, Joshua's my guy, and I am with you as you enter. Not just now as you cross over the river, but I am with you in power. I am with you, with, uh, with you in presence. Now, think about future events where God did this, where He authenticated maybe you know, Joshua's leadership again, but more or less proved that he was with them in present. Think of Jericho, where God, and this happened not long after, God brought down the walls and he sacked the city and gave it to his people. So the miracle at the Jordan was God's way of saying to his people, I am with you and I am going to flex my mighty arm and fulfill my covenant promises to your father's. I just think it's so awesome that, that God sends them out and that on their very first day, He proves that He's with them and He does something that is awesome that no other human being could do. It's telling them clearly, I am with you and I am here in power. And you just think about that now. They're entering into a land where there's giants. They're entering into a land where there are, there are armor-bearing warlords and people that can smash you in a second. They're entering into a frightening place in a sense. And God is saying, I am with you, and I can part a river just as I did with the sea. Have no fear as you enter. My presence and my power are here. I love that truth that we see in the text there. He is with us in His presence and in His power. And He never leaves us, nor does He forsake us. In fact, He's done something for us unlike ever before in the new covenant that He's put His Holy Spirit in His people, where His presence and power are right here at all times. You're never, ever, ever alone. And you're, you're never absent of the power and presence of God. Okay, so that's three. Four, Joshua did as the Lord commanded. He appointed 12 men and instructed them to execute God's plan. We see that in verses 4 through 5. I'm not going to give you commentary on that, it's self-explanatory. We already talked about it. He told them, this is what I want you to do. So the second facet of God's plan, remember the first, authentication, the second facet of God's plan has to do with 12 men getting 12 stones from the river and placing them in their camp at Gilgal. Now let's look at the third facet of God's plan in verses 6 through 7. It reads, that this may be a sign among you, when your children ask in time to come, what do these stones mean to you? Then you shall tell them that the waters of the Jordan were cut off before the ark of the covenant of the Lord. When it passed over the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan were cut off. So these stones shall be to the people of Israel a memorial forever. 
So the third facet of God's plan here was to establish a memorial for His people. The twelve stones, once they reached Gilgal and once Joshua placed them into the shape of a kind of monument or altar or something of that nature, if you will, once those stones entered that land and were erected there, that literally put Gilgal on the map. In fact, later on, you'll see that Israel goes back to this location several times. They spent a great deal of time at Gilgal, and so that monument kind of put this place on the map, much like maybe the Eiffel Tower puts Paris on the map. Of course, this is stones and not iron and much shorter. Now, when future generations, here's the idea, when future generations passed through the region, when they passed through the territory or region of Gilgal, they would see the memorial. They would see this stone structure, if you will, and they would ask what it means. What does this represent? And I think children there could be a direct reference to the children of the Israelites over time, but I think it's just future generations is what God means here. What is this thing here? We're in this area. We're passing through here. What is this structure that's piled up here? Somebody might come to America to visit and enter a place where there's a statue or something. They might ask someone standing there a question. What does this thing mean? Well, that's Paul Revere, and it has this historical you know, sort of value, and this is what happened. And so that's the idea here. Now, I would say hopefully somebody would be there, would be present next to the stones that could explain it. Um, or tell the story. And quite frankly, the parents of all the children should have already known it. And if they were in Gilgal, they should have been able to recite what it means. And so that's the idea here. You know, they would say, paraphrasing the text, these stones were removed from the Jordan over there when God caused the waters to part so that our people could first enter our land. How significant, right? Now, notice how it says the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. That's an important detail. What is the Ark of the Covenant? Well, it is the beautiful gold overlaid wooden box that the skilled craftsman uh, Bezalel built. It had poles running along the side so it could be carried, and it featured two angels on each end facing inward. Uh, The middle section of the lid between the two angels is called the mercy seat. And on the inside, it housed the stone tablets, uh, which were inscribed with the Ten Commandments. This is the ark, right? The ark, you're familiar with this. Not Noah's ark, but the ark. Okay, think of it like that is the ark. And and immediately what comes to mind is Indiana Jones. And you've got the ark and they open it and all the Nazis get turned to skeletons. Uh, That's not biblical, but you get an idea of what the ark is. It is that particular beautiful box. But what is the significance of of the Ark of the Covenant. It's not so much as that it has angels on it or that it's gold or any of that, that it's a beautiful piece of fine furniture, if you will. It represents the presence of God. It, was the, it represented the manifestation of the presence of God at this time. Just as the tabernacle where the Ark was stored did, just as the temple where the Ark was stored later on, the Ark is the on earth at this time the manifestation of the physical presence of God. That is not to say that God was not present everywhere because he's omni or all present. But this ark represented his presence at that time, meaning I am with you. If the ark was with them, then it meant that God was with them in a sense. When the Israelites passed by the ark on their way, right? The ark of the covenant's out in the water. When the Israelites passed by the ark on their way to the other side of the river, they knew that God was there and that he was the one holding back the water and keeping them safe, okay? That's the visual impression there. That's the the visual theology here. They didn't walk across a river that didn't have the ark out in it. It was out in the middle of this thing. It was keeping the water at bay, not necessarily it, but God's presence manifested there. So as they're walking by the ark, it is telling them the reason why we are not drowning, the reason why we are not swept away is because of that ark. And what that ark means is that God is here. God is with us. That's the visual theology of it. That's what they connected it to. Now I want you to slide down to the last two verses, 23 and 24. But i got to hydrate with some coffee. 
I've been talking a mile a minute. Some of you are looking at me like, slow down. Well, I can't. 23 and 24. This is where we see the fourth and final facet of God's plan here in this text. God has many plans, but this, this, the plans that we see in Joshua 3 and 4, this is kind of the final one here. 23 and 24. I know we didn't read it earlier, but it's okay. I've got to touch on it. It says, For the Lord your God dried up the waters. He's reiterating what happened. For the Lord your God dried up the waters of the Jordan for you until you passed over, as the Lord your God did to the Red Sea. See the parallel? Which he dried up for us until we passed over. Here it is. So that all the peoples of the earth may know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, that you may fear the Lord your God forever. The final facet is, is, is represented here. I mean, these two verses make it lucidly clear that God actually had another facet to his plan. And I call that facet the or his expectation. You see, God worked this miracle for them for several reasons, but he also has an expectation of his people. I did this. I want you to do something in response to it, is what we see communicated here clearly in these two verses. And what is it? I touched on it way earlier. God expected His people to tell others about this event. Okay? He wanted this manifestation of His presence and power worked out in this awesome miracle, parting a river, something that no one else could ever do. He wanted that to become known throughout the land and shared throughout the land. It's one of the reasons why they got a memorial. This is an opportunity for you when you pass by this memorial to tell others about what I did here. God has a purpose for His people here, not just to get them into the covenant promises of Abraham, into the promised land, but that they would actually speak of these things over time to their children, to future generations, and to even outsiders. Share with others. Okay, so in speaking and rehearsing what happened, telling others, in doing so, all of the peoples of the earth, is what it says in the text, would come, and I added that little part, would come to know that the hand of the Lord is mighty. How would people in the land and future generations come to know that the Lord's hand is mighty? By telling them about what He does and what He did. He did this, and this proves and shows his might. So, in telling people, all the peoples of the earth would come to know that the hand of the Lord is mighty, and what? Future generations of Israelites would learn to what? Fear? What does the text say? Fear? Uh, We translate that usually as respect. Respect the Lord, their God, forever. You know, how, how do you teach... Israelite children to fear the Lord. You got to tell them about your history. You got to tell them about the things that God did back then. He parted the Red Sea. I mean, he put to death all the firstborn sons of, of the Egyptians, and, and, he, and he, you know, he parted the Red Sea, and he, he did the mountain thing with the, with the, with the, you know, with the Ten Commandments, and he, 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 he crushed the people at Jericho, and he crushed this group of people, brought us in. I mean, you've got to go back and know your history and, and tell people about the things that God has done. You've got to do that specifically to your children. This is why sharing testimony is so important. Now, I don't exalt sharing testimony above the proclamation of the Word of God, but I think that when God's people share what God has done and doing and can do, it's a very profound and powerful moment, and it really does gird up and build up and solidify and strengthen the saints. And it is a great testimony to those around who are wondering what the heck is going on. The world's falling apart. You people are putting your hands up, singing songs. You look stupid. You're telling me that God does these things. That's interesting. The testimony is a, is a profound and powerful tool that God has given us to make Him known. To make people know, to help people know that He is powerful, that He has a mighty arm and, and, and quite frankly, if the Holy Spirit moves in power, that they might fear the Lord. And that's how you teach your children to fear the Lord. You tell them, you, you proclaim God's law to them, and you, you tell them about the things that God has done, and then you, 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 you buffer all of it with the gospel of, of grace. And say, God is a, a God, a holy God, and He's provided for us because we're unholy. And 
it's really, really good for us and for our children to fear the Lord. And I'm really, really saddened, I think, not by the church as a whole today, but I just see so many cavalier Christians who seemingly, and they proclaim Christ, but they don't fear the Lord at all. They live loose and lascivious lives and, and claim grace, and they don't, they don't have any fear of the Lord. And he is, it says in Hebrews 10, it's an awesome thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Um, he's not to be trifled with. He is a Abba Father. But... So the fourth and final facet of God's plan was for His people to spread the news about the miracle at the Jordan, right? That's the fourth and final facet. As Christians, it is essential, it is important that we learn to follow Israel's example here or, quite frankly, to obey the Scripture that we see here and throughout Scripture. We need to set aside time to look back. We really do. I don't think we do it enough. We're Americans. We're American evangelicals. Everything is so fast and fast-paced, and we're moving and we're moving and we're moving, and, and we rarely even Sabbath. Even on my Sabbath, I'm working somehow. And sometimes God just looks me in the eyes, and, well, He doesn't look me in the eyes. I'd get incinerated. Um, he basically somehow from His Word reiterates the truth of the Sabbath, that Jesus is your Sabbath. But Phil, you need to take a break. You need to quit thinking about my ministry and just rest. Close your eyes and sleep. And quite frankly, he tells me often too, in some sense, to, to look back. Remember the things that I have done. We need to follow Israel's, Israel's example, the commands of God here. Look back. Remember God's work. Reflect on God's work. Celebrate God's work. And you know what? We need to share what He has done, share what He is doing, and share what He can do with others. So I am excited to announce that I am instituting without elder approval, so I'll hear about this later, and I don't think they'll really care because it's not like some crazy life-changing thing or whatever, but I am excited to announce that I am instituting a new tradition here at RHC. And i got to hold myself to it, but here's the deal. From now on, the first Sunday in January is going to be a memorial to the Lord. We're going to look back over the previous year. We're going to look back over 2016, whatever it is, 2017. We are going to stop and we are going to look back and we are going to celebrate some of the things that God did. Could we cover them all? No, are you kidding me? So the first Sunday of January, really the turn of the year, is going to be a memorial to the Lord where we do these things here. And I have a handful of people who, who I've been kind of working with throughout the week, mostly telling them, cut it back, cut it back, cut it back, um, because I gave them a certain amount of time up front, and then as my sermon pages grew, I shortened their time. Uh, and then I cut entire pages out of my sermon because uh, Rick Countryman reminded me of how long I can go. Uh, don't go long. Anyways, I have a handful of people who spent last week looking back, reflecting, remembering, and writing down some of the things they saw God do over the last year. And they are ready to come forward um, to share with you, to share with you. And we can listen to them and celebrate with them. And I will just say it once more. They have two to three minutes each. Okay? Okay, so the Israelites had 12 stones. We got six. Okay? We got six. So I would like to call up first Royina. You want to put this on here and do it? You want me to hold the microphone for you? Yeah, because I have tremors. Okay. And um, I'm shutting off my phone because Bill has burnt me out on text. <laughs> Those of you who text me mostly know that I have tremors, so I can't answer you because I can't text. So that explains why every time I text you, I get a call from you right after. Yeah. Okay, tell, tell us, tell us uh, uh, share with us the things that God has done. Well, we did a Bible study, um, mixed uh, men and women Bible study. Co-ed. Uh, yeah, co-ed, and... Um, one of, a, one of the evenings was about forgiveness, and uh, I've been rather estranged from my youngest daughter, Nikki, 
who lives in Clovis, and she's a hairdresser. And um, if I send her a little private message on her Facebook, she ignores it. If uh, a year ago I sent her a message that I'm coming to Clovis, would you like to go to lunch? Oh, yeah, she did go to lunch with me and everything was fine, but she doesn't talk to me any other time. And I always feel like uh, something's going on that I don't know about. And um, so on Christmas Eve, she never writes, answers anything. If I call her, I'll call you right back. I'm doing a hairdo. So on Christmas Eve, I felt the terrible need to look at her page. Her Facebook page? Uh, yeah, her Facebook page. And um, I'll read it to you in a second. But um, I love her, and I miss her so much. And I prayed and prayed and prayed for her and another daughter that has issues as well. Um, she wrote a paragraph that could be copied, but it doesn't matter because it's never been her in her life. Mm. And uh, uh, she wrote it on Christmas Eve, and on Monday I sent her a message, may I share this on my Facebook? And on Wednesday she said, yes, you can share it. A few hours later, text from Phil, second the fourth text from Phil, does anybody want to talk? And I'm like, yes. Over-communication this is, is like, This is like, this happened. God answered my prayer, and it went one piece by one piece by one piece. Nikki Cartwright, on December 24th at 5.04 p.m., Clovis. I want to say something about the spirituality debate. You don't believe in God? That's okay, but why is it so important for many of you to mock those of us that do? If we're wrong, what have we lost when we die? Nothing. How does our faith in Jesus Christ bring you any harm? You think it makes me stupid, gullible, ignorant? That's okay, too. How does that affect you? If you're wrong, the consequence is far worse. I would rather live my life believing in God and serving him and find out I was right than not believe in him and not serve him and find out I was wrong. Then it's too late. Ain't no shame in my game. <laughs> You'd have to meet her. We just did. <laughs> me. I believe in Jesus Christ he said, deny me in front of your friends, and I will deny you in front of my father. Mm. For this girl to make such a statement public, whether she may have copied it or thought of it herself, is, blows my mind. It's the deepest answer to one of my many prayers over the past year and a half or two years. Thank you. Good job. Thank you. Well, ever since I, I met you a few years ago, you've, you've been praying for her that she'd come to know the Lord and even have some kind of a relationship with you again, you know, and just to, for you to read that must have been mind-blowing. And now you're talking with her a little bit too, so God is good. There are several things I'm grateful for from 2016. I've learned a lot of lessons. Um, I was thankful for grief. In 2016, we lost a lot of family members, and it's um, and that hurts. But it was comforting for me to know that uh, Jesus grieved also. He grieved for he grieved for Lazarus. So my lesson in that was to lean on Christ because He's been there. Um, and I was grateful for comfort. Sometimes we need more than physical comfort. Sometimes we need emotional comfort. I know emotional pain can cause growth. Um, there have been many times when I felt that there was no one there that cared enough to listen to me. But my lesson in that was that I need to turn to Jesus because he's been alone too. Remember when he was in the garden? Mm. And I'm grateful for joy. Um, my son and I could not be in the same room together without knocking heads. We were terrible. Um, but we started talking. And this year we celebrated Thanksgiving and Christmas together for the first time in years. Nice. 
So, and my lesson in that was to trust Jesus because he knows the joy of being reunited because after the cross, he was reunited with his father. <laughs> and I'm grateful for knowledge. One of my favorite things to do is Bible study. And the Lord has given me a very faithful study partner for 16 years. And I want to know him better. And he tells me if I study his word, I'll know him better and then I can love him. Because you can't love somebody you don't know. And I'm grateful for the growth in him, the knowledge of him. You've heard it said, when all else fails, turn to Jesus. Well, he's teaching me, turn to him first because all else is going to fail. Amen. Amen. Good job. <laughs> Kelly and Christina are Phil Collins, who's singing and playing the drums. Yeah, come on up. We'll share the stage. Um, the beginning of this won't sound much, like much of a blessing, but just bear with me. Um, as, as all of you know, um, last summer uh, we were pregnant. And um, that didn't take long. <clears throat> but uh, that baby went to be with the Lord. Um, a few months into the pregnancy. But um, <clears throat> I think the first blessing uh, is we have faith that that baby's in heaven. Uh, we're not one of these people that um, goes through something like that and is lost and isn't sure. So think, uh, we thank the Lord for the faith and uh, knowing that baby's in heaven. Um, I'm very uh, happy, even though you can't tell right now, <laughs> I'm very happy to report, many of you know this already, that uh, we are expecting a baby again. Uh, we're about 13 weeks uh, at this point. <clears throat> we had a, um, we had a appointment a few days ago. That we got a very strong heartbeat, and uh, things are looking good so far. So, praise the Lord for that. Um, and uh, quickly, I just want to mention, <clears throat> about a month ago, uh, I was getting Christmas cards together, and um, I was reminded that, <clears throat> you know, in, in our lives, we, uh, when it's been the fifth anniversary or the 10th anniversary or the 20th anniversary of something, or birthdays or whatever, those, those tend to be more the milestones that uh, uh, affect us more than others. And um, 2017, uh, in just a few days, actually, is a, is a milestone uh, for the family. Uh, in a few days, on January 6th, will be five years ago since, um, you know, the, the girls lost their dad and Brenda lost her husband. And uh, that's the fifth anniversary of that. And in, uh, in September, it will be the 10th anniversary uh, that he was diagnosed, where really they're household in their life uh, was never the same. <clears throat> and uh, I think it's just a blessing to remember that God is sovereign and has a plan. I don't think it's an accident that uh, we will bring life in the middle of two milestones that remind us of death and suffering. I just think it's God's way of saying, um, I took, but I'm giving you back, as He always does. <clears throat> and uh, what a blessing that is. And, and we'll thank you for, for this church and thank you for, thankful for this opportunity uh, to share this with you. Thank you. Wow. Thank you for um, sharing a little bit of your story and the, the tragedy of life and the goodness of God all mingled together. We're uh, going to pray, be praying for you that God carries this pregnancy all the way through and uh, we need to grow this church, and if we have to do it internally by making babies, we'll, we'll do that, for crying out loud. Um, but thank you for sharing that, man, and just amazing. Um, where is my friend Gina? Come on up, Gina. Hi. Happy New Year. <laughs> I think I've met all of you. I think I have. I met you. I think I have. <laughs> um, so Pastor Phil asked if a few people would share some examples of God's goodness 
and work in 2016. At first, I didn't volunteer right away, but he's very persistent. A lot of texts. I didn't volunteer because I really didn't feel like, I mean, God has blessed me with so many things, but like, what is amazing like that he did? And then I realized something, something very important, that as a believer and follower of Christ, I have so many amazing things to share because God is always working in our lives, always. So in 2016, God has been at work in many ways, but I will narrow it down to three common themes. First, God's goodness and work was revealed through the countless moments of joy in 2016. Some of my joyful moments include... Witnessing the baptism of my youngest son, John, and watching him grow spiritually this year. Several times throughout 2016, when I was having a mommy meltdown, John would take me by the hand, look me in the eyes, and say, Mom, I think we should pray. And then he prayed the most heartfelt, spirit-filled prayer. Man, if that is an example of joy and God at work in the life of a 12-year-old boy, then I don't know what is. Number two, getting a chance to go to a log cabin near Alpine Lake with my family and some friends to just marvel at God's creation and hang out together and enjoy each other's company. Three, seeing my oldest son's commitment in being part of a political campaign this year, as well as his desire to one day become a Marine and serve his country. Four, this is a big one, hearing my brother tell me, sister, be relentless with me when asking me to come to church. Don't stop, because one day I will. Number five, being reunited with a long-lost friend. And six, the times I stop and pray with my patients and share the gospel. That's nothing but pure joy. Secondly, I saw God working through the challenges I faced in 2016. Yes, can you believe I said challenges? I believe God used challenges to build my character and strength and ultimately make me more like Jesus. Some of my challenges of 2016 include being a home health nurse, never knowing what I'm going to face, yet God always protecting me and sustaining me. Number two, the election. Yes, I said the election. I faced many challenges with this one, including being persecuted by family members for my beliefs yet my love for Jesus grew stronger than ever. Number three, my struggle with physical pain and relying on God to get me through the day, and he always does. Number four, the challenge of balancing family and work, so difficult at times when I just don't know how I'm going to get it all done. Yet, knowing when I stop, seek his word, and pray, God always equips me for the battle and gets me through it. Lastly, God's goodness was revealed to me in 2016, through the, through the hope I have in Christ. God gave me hope in 2016 every time I opened his word and studied it. God gave me hope every time I walked into RHC and heard the gospel preached and took communion. God gave me hope when I dwelled on the work of Christ, his death and resurrection, and how a sinner like me will be looked upon by God as righteous and redeemed. God gave me hope when I realized God's love for me is not dependent on what I do, but on what his son did. Hallelujah, what a Savior. Wow, I guess I did have some amazing examples of God's goodness and work in 2016. Thank you, and may God reveal to you all his amazing works in your life. Amen. Wow. Carla. Come on up, on. This is Carla. I think everyone knows. Except for maybe a few people. You want me to hold it for you? You yes, got it. Please, my hands are sweaty. Okay. <laughs> so are mine, but it's okay. Come on up here. Well, um, it's kind of funny. Your message today um, rang in with what I wrote, which was the faithfulness of God. Yeah. Um, uh, and I wrote it all down because I knew I'd forget. <laughs> I'm too okay. nervous. Um, I've nervous. rejoiced in 2016 because my father God has been faithful uh, he's led me down the right paths and I believe it was the Lord that led me here to RHC I had no intention on leaving my church where I was at I was very happy there 
but I came for a visit to support my brother and sister-in-law and their desire to serve the Lord. Um, I came for one visit, but every Sunday, the Spirit would lead me back here, and I didn't understand why. I'm shaking so much I can't. You're okay. You're doing great. <laughs> You're doing really good. Um, anyways, I, I didn't understand why, but the Lord would lead me to Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. It said, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all, his, all, his way, all my ways, trust in him. And he would you know, lead me in the right way. I would acknowledge him and he would direct my path. Um, my God is faithful. I continued to pray for guidance, understanding, and wisdom. And little by little, he began to reveal to me the answer. Um, just about a month ago, I finally got an answer. I'd been struggling with this. Do I go back? Do Why am I here? I, don't, I didn't understand. But he showed me as I was reading the word in a, um, that church is not about how great the pastor is, how big or small the church is, how awesome the music is. Um, the classes they offer, activities they have, or even how nice the people are. But it's, do they focus on and glorify Jesus? After almost a year of seeking and praying about this, I realized I was plucked out of my church and planted at RHC because here Christ is glorified. I have learned about God's sovereignty, his omnipot omnipotence, and his foreknowledge, which... It, it just blows your mind. I can't even wrap my mind around all of that. I still can't understand it, but I just believe it. Um, I'm beginning to know Jesus. Um, I thought I knew him before, but I'm really getting to know who he is, his heart and his purpose. And my heart is being filled up with him. My God has been faithful. Um, when I'm overwhelmed and heavy burdened, he lifts me up and gives me peace. He says in 1 Peter 5, 7, to cast all my cares and worries on him because he cares for me. Mm -hmm. And thank God for that because I would, just don't know how I would live in this life. Um, Isaiah 26, 3 says, if I keep my mind upon him and trust in him, he'll keep me in perfect peace. Mm -hmm. And he does. Um, I rejoice today because my father has been faithful. Because he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And because he will never leave me nor forsake me. He's everything to me, and apart from him, I am nothing. Hmm. My hope for 2017 is that I will continue to grow and mature in Christ and share with others all that he is, because he is faithful. Um, and, and then something you said, too, that he doesn't reveal everything to you. He sends you out, and a perfect example is I didn't understand why I was here, and he didn't tell me. He made me seek him. He made me pray. He made me look to him and trust him. And even when I didn't know why I was here, and I still don't know what my purpose is, but I just trust him. And I know that he'll reveal everything to me. So, Amen. Thank you. Wow. Thank you um, to uh, each of you. It takes, I, I think it takes a great deal of courage. To, to come forward and, and to speak like that. It's not, it's not the easiest thing to do. I remember the first time I had to do it was at Big Valley, and I broke out in hives from head to toe. It was a nightmare, and I still preached. I just knew that that was the devil, that he was attacking me. And, you know, I don't want you to preach. And uh, it's just, and I, I preached, and I, and I preached with hives several times after. I don't care. I don't preach the word. And you guys uh, faithfully reflected and recorded and wrote down and rehearsed and came in here and shared. And um, how many of you have been blessed by the work that God has been doing in their lives? And I'm sure that everyone in this room, if we had enough time, and we should be sharing these things with each other throughout the week, but that everyone could, could stand and, and testify to God's goodness over the last year and beyond. He is good. Well, we have an amazing opportunity this morning to celebrate communion. Communion is a memorial to the Lord where we look back to Jesus' atoning work and we celebrate the new covenant which He established and then ratified with His own blood. Uh, the parallels between what we've been looking at this morning and Jesus are incredible. They really are. Jesus is our Passover lamb. 
Jesus is our ark of safety. Jesus is the stone which brings down all of the kingdoms of the world. We've been studying that in Daniel. And Jesus is the chief cornerstone. The parallels are just awesome. In fact, all of Scripture, the job of Scripture, if Scripture had a task, if it had a job, it is to point to Jesus. It is to point to our Lord. And so communion gives us an opportunity to to reflect and and to look at Jesus and to, to ponder and to consider what he did for us.